So thanks for coming on, Jay. How you been? Sure. Good, good. Can't complain. Can't complain. So you're going to be a humanitarian award on February 28th for Hatsallah. And I was wondering, why would Jay Leno accept an award from a paramedic organization in Israel? My theory is that you love their motorcycles. Well, we, I, I bought a couple of those the ambulances there. So I thought that, that seemed like a pretty clever idea. Um, you know, I, I I grew up when I was a little kid. The Henrys lived next door to us, and I was sort of the Shabbos goy. You know, I would have to. Uh, I remember one time on the Sabbath, they they didn't want to turn out the light, and Mrs. Henry put a towel over the lamp. Uh, over the shade, and it caught fire and burned part of the garage. And my dad said, "Okay, your job is to go over there and take care of this stuff for him, you know." And then at Christmas time, when we were having Christmas, uh, they would do things for us, you know. And it was just, uh, it, you know, it's just the way things should be, you know. People helping out one another, and it's not passing judgment on one religion is better or worse. It, it was just different. So I always sort of like that part of it, you know. I, I grew up, my mother's from Scotland, but my dad was Italian. And we were closer, more to the Italian side of the family. Uh, so there was always tons of food and, and a lot of people yelling and that kind of stuff. And I always noticed that in Jewish households, too. There'd be a lot of food around, although not nearly as good as the Italian food. And, and, and uh, it depends. just a lot of relatives. A lot, a lot, a lot of relatives and women giving orders and the, you know all that kind of stuff. So it was a, it, it was just funny to me. I always had a good relationship. I always liked Jewish people and and. Well, it's it funny because uh, it's because you want to talk about Judaism because I'm the editor in chief of the Jewish Journal and all I want to do is talk about cars and motorcycles. Oh, sure, so whatever this you is want. fantastic. This is great. I love it because you know I, uh, I've always been. I've always admired your, your your whole your car collection and everything, and I want to tell you that 30 years ago I fell in love with a P1800 Volvo. I oh, saw this nice. yeah, car, yeah. and I'm saying to myself, "Here I am. I'm a spiritual guy. I'm into Judaism and everything." I almost felt guilty, Jay. I literally fell in love with this baby blue 1964 P1800, and it struck oh, me great. that there's something about cars. What is it about cars that moves us so much? Well, I think for people of our generation, it was more the fact it was the iPhone of the day. You know, kids can now go places virtually. We had to go places in reality, you know, and the only thing that could get you there was uh, was a car. A you sense know? of power. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I grew up in a New England town, and uptown was seven miles, which was either minimum a half hour by bike, or five minutes by car, you know. So that was sort of the difference right there. Right, and then in California, it's even more liberating with these big freeways. There's something so American. I mean, I mean, one of the greatest projects in human history was the interstate system in, in, right. in the 50s, and it sort of reinforced this sort of car culture. Uh, right, right, right. And I wonder where that's going now with Uber and everything. I have these kids are growing up and they don't even want to drive because they're all. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's more the fact that you're a bit more involved. You know, uh, here's the analogy I use. I have a friend of mine who collects Maytag washing machines built before like 1918. And the reason he collects them is the engine was outside the agitator and 
it was on a it was there was a lot of chrome and glass and a little wheel that turned around and it had a uh, a fan belt kind of rubber belt kind of deal that ran and because it was in the home the engine the mechanical part had to look attractive and then suddenly somebody decided you know we can just put a white metal box over this thing and we don't have to spend all this money on the copper and the brass and everything else and so they they didn't become uh, as collectible. You follow what I'm saying? Right, right. Exactly. There was extra stuff. You see that in architecture. They just did extra things, but we became sort of more efficient. And when you look at these old cars, my God, they're unbelievable. And they've tried to recreate that with the PT Cruiser and the Thunderbird, and they take the old design. Uh, yeah, and sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it's so funny. I, I went to China. They wanted me to go speak to some Chinese students about car design. And the Chinese students were going to draw some cars, uh, you know. And when you see American cars and the American kids and they draw a car, you see the influence of cars of the 60s or the 70s or the 50s. But in China, there's no car culture. So the cars, some had no wheels, some looked like an egg. I mean, they didn't resemble uh, cars at all, you know? So it was kind of interesting. You know, because I, I, I followed you for years, you know, on The Tonight Show, and I would always think, you know, you're doing your comedy routine and you're doing all your stuff on The Tonight Show, and I know you have this whole other life with cars and motorcycles, and I was right. wondering, they never sort of overlap too much. You didn't, you know? No, not really. It's just that when you work with your hands, it makes you appreciate how easy it is to make money show business, you know? <laughs> when you're just I mean, schmoozing. I mean, the example I always use, and I've said this a million times, but it's true. One day I had a big star on my show. I won't say who it is. And during the break, he said, hey, I want to get a cool sports car. What's what's a cool car to get? And I said, well, this new Ferrari came out. It's pretty neat. And he said to me, yeah, but everybody has a Ferrari. I said, okay, first of all, everybody does not have a Ferrari, okay? Okay, you've lived, in, you've lived in Hollywood too long. Okay, you need to get out of here because if you ever say that publicly, you'll be taken out in the streets and beaten. I said, most people have never even seen a Ferrari. And, and then he realized how stupid it sounded. But when you live in Los Angeles, you, you, that's what happens. Hey, what's the only car ever built in Israel? Do you know? Uh, let's see. Shani, can you help me? She lived in Israel. It's my daughter. Which car? Which the only car? Come on, you never, you know the Sabra. You never heard of the Sabra. You know what? I did hear the Sabra. Oh my God! Excellent. What happened to it? It became a hummus. It's like I say to people: Look, if you need a kidney, you need a heart transplant, you got a urinary problem, see a Jewish guy. You got a broken (laughs) transmission, not so much. You know, and that's 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 kind of and that's kind of what happened. it was it was fiberglass. It was assembled in Haifa. Uh, it used a, an English engine, usually from a Triumph. And it wasn't a bad little sports car. I mean, it was actually a pretty good car. It was just it just couldn't make a go of it. You know, it just like all businesses, you know, the competition was too great and all that kind of stuff. But so, it was it was a nice little car. Yeah. So they they got other things that they do pretty well in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so uh, let's jump to comedy. What do you think of the world of comedy today? Do you think that this whole politically correct world is sort of, you know, diminishing some of the comedy? What's your take on that, Jay? Not really. You know something? Politically correct to me is just another word for polite. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the old days, for example, as a comic, if I'm working the stage and I'm being heckled, 
and I see a fat guy in the audience who's heckling me, I make fun of his tie hmm. or something else. And if he's any kind of person, he kind of gets it. And they back off a bit and they realize I'm not going for the throat. You know, the idea is you look, comedy is ever changing. What's popular last year doesn't work this year. I mean, for example, to me, like um, when we were kids, you made fun of the harassee, the dumb blonde or whatever it might be. Now you make fun of the harasser. These guys that don't know what they're doing. They're, they, they should, you, know, you know, I mean, it's a matter of just reading the public mood and just writing your material to suit it. I mean, there was a time when Polish jokes were funny. We can't do those anymore. I mean, African-American jokes were fairly common part of vaudeville in the 20s and 30s. You can't do that anymore. Uh, and that wasn't politically correct. It was just correct. And like anything, the pendulum swings too far in either direction. And there's going to be collateral damage and excesses. But for the most part, I think it's basically good. Right. Uh, I mean, go ahead. But the thing that doesn't change is an attitude, right? And your attitude was to be polite. You never had, you never picked up the snarky attitude that some of your contemporaries had, which I thought was part of what made you special is it was more honest comedy from your part. It wasn't so... Well, much. it depends on what you, what, what, what you want to do. If you're trying to get a point across... I remember once years ago, we had a, a comedian audition for The Tonight Show. And his opening joke, his opening thing was, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. And I said to him, I said, first of all, nobody cares what your affiliation is. We'll figure out your politics. We'll know where you're coming from. But if you walk out at the beginning and you express your views so vehemently, you're going to lose half the crowd right away. Why not just be a comedian first? And then people will understand, oh, I think this guy is a Republican, or I think he's Democrat, or whatever it might be. You know, and well, he didn't listen to me, and he opened with it, and he did okay, but some of the guys are, oh, oh, are these guys. Because he was more interested in getting his political viewpoint across than he wasn't telling a joke or being funny. Uh, I mean, I have nothing against people that wanted they choose to do that. If that's what you fervently believe, well, that's that's fine. But it's that's just not, not that funny. It's not. It's not your job. You know? Yeah, it's so interesting because I uh, I think there's something about politics, Jay, that sort of takes us over. And I've seen now a lot of comedians. They're so they have such passionate feelings politically that it ends up coloring well, a lot of the late know, night humor. It's interesting. It's. People always say, oh, I bet you wish you're on now in the age of Trump. And no, I don't. I don't like Trump. I don't think he's morally fit for the office. I don't think any man who doesn't think John McCain is not a hero. I, I'm sorry. So to me, I couldn't really make fun of him because it would be too vicious. You know, I grew up in the time when, uh, you know, Bush was dumb and Clinton was horny and it was an easier time, you know. I mean, although I didn't agree with George Bush's policies necessarily, I liked him personally. And I thought he was basically a good guy who got led astray. So consequently, you know, I go out and I'd say to the audience, you know, I don't think President Bush quite understands what, and the audience would start to giggle or titter, you know, maybe. And then you'd do your joke, but you'd set it up in such a way that 
uh, look, I'm, folks, I'm just giving you the facts. Okay, here you go. You you make of this what you will, you know, and and then you have fun with it that way. But I mean, I always thought a comedian's first job was to entertain the audience, not to get a particular viewpoint across. Unless you're hired specifically for that reason, then that's fine, you know. Do you still watch some late night comedy? Of course I do. I like all the comics. I think I all. I think considering that, you know, it's funny. It's hard to do Trump jokes because. Comedy is essentially conservative, and then the punchline is outrageous. You know, I mean, like years ago, the punchline to the joke might have been, that's like the president banging a porn star. Okay, well, now the president's banging porn stars. So where do you go? <laughs> how, do you, how do you get more outrageous than that? You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the, the problem there, you know? Yeah, I, I also never felt in the past that comedians, I never felt their agendas, their political agenda like I do today. I just think it's just so blatant what their agenda is. And whenever I feel a political agenda, it takes away from the purity of the entertainment. Yeah, unless it was Mort Saul or one of those mm -hmm. kind of people. Uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, they I were mean, like equal opportunity I, offenders. Yeah, you know? I always felt I was doing my job when I got angry letters from both sides. Well, Mr. Leno, you and your Republican friends. Well, Mr. Leno, you and your Democratic buddies. I hope you're... And I go, oh, when I get those I get those letters the same week, and I go, okay, well, I must be doing something right because they're both pissed off, you know? Right, but you didn't piss people off because you had a sense of, of politeness. Who was the greatest well, guest? It, Sorry, I go didn't ahead. Try to piss. Yeah, I didn't try to piss people. No, that wasn't my intention. You know, like I never get this thing where people say... A comedian's asked to apologize. I'm never apologizing. Well, look, if I offended you, then obviously uh, the joke hits you on some different level. If that bothers you, I apologize. Sorry about that. That's, that. That wasn't my intention. Who was the greatest guest you ever had, Jay? Well, the greatest guest I ever had. You know, that's a hard one to pin down because to me, sometimes the greatest guests were always the second guest the character actors mm. because those people would come up with stories. Things are really funny, you know, big, big stars, you know, the public just go out there and talk about the movie. And well, I'm famous. People just want to hear me talk. So, it's not, mm -hmm. so there was a bit more of an attitude, you know, when right. you got, when you got the, uh, you know, one, you know, the guy who had been in business for 30 years and he finally got a break and now he's in a movie. Oh boy, that guy's going to be entertaining, you know? Uh, you know, some of the best people, I remember we had, you know who Story Musgrove is? Mm -mm. Story Musgrove was an astronaut, but he was also a philosopher. So when he would talk about traveling in space, oh my God, he really put it in terms that were interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as I like Buzz Aldrin and all those guys and the heroes, what's it like to walk on the moon? Cool. Okay. You know, thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you, you didn't get that... You get that sense of uh, that sense of wonder, you know. Story Musgrove could always weave it, you know, interestingly. How um, much? How I much mean, of the dialogue was scripted, and how much did you just go off on? Well, not on much. Not much is scripted. I mean, yeah. what it would be, I would say to this, I would always meet with people beforehand, and I would say, "Look, uh, I have to ask you these questions, okay? You got arrested for cocaine two weeks ago. You spent the night in prison." <laughs> I have to ask you about that. If you choose not to answer, that's fine. But don't get mad at me when I ask you the question. It's not going to be a, this isn't an ambush. I just want you to know 
I have to go there, you know. And and, 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 and how long you've been on probation and stuff like that? Whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, I mean, for the most part. So it, it wasn't that the answers were scripted, but you kind of knew. I mean, if there was, you know, I always knew the boundaries. Like a lot of times the star would say, uh, you know, my kid got arrested at, at the private school. We sent him to for drugs. Okay, well, that's, uh, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to embarrass your kid or you. But if it's something that involved the actual person of the star or the general public is aware of it, well, then you, then I would uh, I would have to ask the question. You know? And my daughter wanted me to ask you, how come you work so hard? Is it true that you only go by on four hours sleep a night? You know, I'm a huge believer in low self-esteem. <laughs> you know, the only people with high self-esteem are criminals and actors, you know. And to me, if you don't think you're the smartest person in the room, you're more apt to listen to the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was dyslexic. Well, I still am dyslexic. But, and my mother would always say to me, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard as the other kids to get the same thing. And that seemed like a fair trade-off. I thought, okay, if I can get the same thing by working twice as hard. And I found early on, the one thing about being, I find with dyslexic people is, when they find something they like to do, they focus on it, sometimes at the expense of everything else. But I remember when I was a kid, I would go to the Improv in New York, and you'd line up at 6 o'clock to get a spot at 11 or 12 or 1 in the morning to do five minutes of comedy. And I remember getting there at 6 o'clock. And I remember comedy was finally going, I've been here two hours. It sucks. I'm leaving. They'd step out of line, and I'd go, oh, good. I move forward. So I would move out. And I thought, okay. So that, that that always worked for me. I always assume, I never assume that anybody is there to see me. I assume they're there to hear the jokes or whatever the product you have is. Then you became the most famous comic in America. And how did you well, stay? Well, not the most famous, certainly. But well, nice, Tonight Show, nice you took on Johnny yeah, Carson. Yeah. And then right, how do you right. stay humble uh, with, with well, fame well, and success? Well, here's how you stay humble. You know, when I got the Tonight Show, it was a, I said, Ma, she, she says, oh, I saw the show, The Tonight Show starring Jay Leno. Oh, Mr. Big Shot starring Jay Leno. Got his name all over the world. I go, Mom, it's just the way they go. Oh, but it sounds like starring Jay Leno, like you're the big star of the program. Okay, Ma, I changed. You know, so I changed it to The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, okay, just for my mother, because my mother thought that was I was showing off. That's know, a nice scoop, Jay. That's a great scoop. And she, so she kept you humble. And well, yeah, yeah. She was oh, starring Jay Leno. Oh, Mr. Big Shot. You know, I mean, my mother just, you know, my mother's from Scotland and she had that Scottish way. It was just funny. It was just funny to me, you know. I mean, a lot of people don't know that while you were doing The Tonight Show, you were still schlepping to Vegas and doing show. You were still working in, in nightclubs and comedy clubs. Well, first of all, I'm a comedian and I was lucky enough to get a talk show. Uh, okay, that was fine. But talk shows are like any other TV show. They only last a certain amount of time. I was lucky. Mine lasted 22 years. But most people get a TV show. They were unknown before the show. They're famous. And then the show ends and they have nowhere to go. You know, to me, if you have a skill or a craft or you're a carpenter or you can work on transmissions, you can always make a living. And that's what's nice about being a stand-up comedian. When, you know, you can just go out. You don't need 160 people and a lighting guy and a director and a producer. You just go out on stage and tell jokes. And, uh, you know, I always 
that was always my way. I always, I always banked all the money I made as a tonight. I never spent a dime of TV money, and I lived on off the money I made as a comedian, as a performer, because that's that's my job. Everything else is extra. So the other money I use for, uh, you know, charity or college. Um, you like to send. You know, we like to give out scholarships and stuff like that. You know, and it so annoys me that kids now get out of college with hundreds of thousand dollars in debt. And it's like, it seems so unfair. You just, you just screwed from the, from the day you leave college, you know, it's like, Jesus. So we try to help out a little bit in that way when we can. But it's your job, but it's also, I get a feeling that you would do it whether they paid you or not. Well, that's exactly true. The same show you do for free, it's the same show you make a ton of, more, ton of money for in Vegas. So that kind of shows you it's not just for the money. Uh, I mean, you know, I did this for years when nobody came to see you. Uh, you get booed off the stage. I remember one of, one of my nightmare gigs, I was opening for Tom Jones in Las Vegas. And I get there, and I go on the first night, and I do okay. Then I walk out there the second night, and I realize there are about, there are about 300 women in the Tom Jones fan club. And they had all bought tickets to all 14 shows. And these three or 400 women sat in the first seven or eight rows every night. So when I walk out the second night, they all go, because ah, in their minds, me being on, on stage is time that Tom's not singing. In their minds, if I wasn't there, Tom would be singing right now instead of me. Plus, they just heard my act last night. And by the third night, they've heard it twice before. And by the fourth night, they've heard it four times. So after, so after two weeks, by the time I'm on the first 14th show, they can pretty much do the act themselves. I mean, I mean, it was hilarious. They, these same women came in. I mean, I walk out on stage. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Beth. Hi, Susan. <laughs> How are you? Hi, hi, yeah. Yeah. Are you going to do that thing again tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was just like the biggest nightmare, but it was funny. It just, it just, it just made me laugh. Well, you've made people laugh. I mean, for, for years, I have a theory on laughter that, it's, that? It, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the most intimate things when you make people laugh, it creates a sort of a deep bond of affection. And there were so many Jewish comedians over the past century that made America laugh. We poked fun at ourselves. And I think a real critical point oh, yeah. between you know, the love I tell affair. You, this is a story I always tell. People say, why do you like Jews? Uh, one day I, I had an agent in New York, Abe Totis was his name. That's a horrible, horrible agent, like the worst stereotype agent. And he sends me, I got, a, he said, I got a gig for you in the Poconos. It's a private resort. What is it? It's, it's got up there. I only pay $50, but you drive up to the Poconos. Okay, it was like an eight-hour drive from Boston. I drive up to Poconos, and I'm looking for it, and I see this Hasidic campsite. And I go, <laughs> is that it? And then I see a sign, tonight, Jay Leno, Jewish storyteller. Oh. <laughs> and I go, oh, what's it? So I pull in, and I get there, and I meet the guy, you know, and I look out in the audience, and it's all Hasidic Jews with the, the hats and the long coats and the whole thing. And I said, Oh, man. So I go out and I just start talking, you know, and they're just staring at me. And then the rabbi puts his hand up. He, I go, yes, sir. He goes, I take it you're not Jewish. 
I, I said, no, sir, I'm, I'm not. And I said, I, look, I said, I don't want to be paid for tonight. Apparently the agent told you a story. No, I'm not J Jewish in any way. Uh, I didn't realize. And he goes, stop. He says, he says, tell us about your family. I said, well, my dad sells insurance. My mom's a housewife. My dad hates me being in show business. He wants me to quit show business, get a real job. And my brother went to Yale and became a lawyer. And he's with the top 10 students in the country. And my mother just wants me to finish school and get this show business thing out of my mind. And the rabbi goes, stop, stop. You're Jewish enough, you get paid. You know, <laughs> so I thought I thought it was a funny story, you know, and it, but it was true. But I thought so. That's why that's why I like these Jews. They're, they're nice people, you know. Well, I think a big part of the love affair between the Jews and America is so wrapped up around the fact that we made America laugh. You know, if I I, I can admire a, a great attorney or a great doctor, but there's something about somebody who makes you laugh well, that creates I, a I deep affection. So. I, you know, it's just. It's all how you're brought up. Nice people are nice people. And, you know, I think the family but funny thing people and, go to a, another level. Jack Benny, Sid Caesar, Milton Berle, George Burns. Like the whole, oh, yeah, yeah. Right up yeah, until yeah. Seinfeld and so forth. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, we became sort of so part of American culture. You know, I used to go, oh, I, I, I went I, to see Billy Crystal at his show, you know, 600 dinners, and like most right. of the audience is not Jewish, and they're laughing at Jewish humor. It's almost right, it's right. become so American. I, I really think the um, a big sort of the, the, the Jews who have combated anti-Semitism the most are the comedians, the Jewish comedians, because right, they, they right. created this affection between the Jews and America. There's nothing more sort of um, appealing than somebody who makes fun of himself. And, well, and this I agree. Is what that's we true. I think that's. I think that's certainly true. I think Who are the comedians true. that inspired you, Jay? I know there was George Carlin for sure. Well, I like Carlin. Uh, Robert Klein was big for me because when I was young, all the comedians who were Jewish and from the Lower East Side of New York, and they grew up during the Depression and blah blah blah. blah was Robert Klein was the first guy who was like me, middle class, uh, went to college. Uh, was talking about the same things young people were talking about at the time, Vietnam War, Nixon, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, so I related to him. But I liked Benny. I liked um, Johnny Carson. I didn't like Milton Berle. I thought he was a little too mean, too much of a mean streak in there. But I, I think he was definitely funny. Uh, but, yeah, I remember I worked with a woman who told me uh, – she was a big woman, like 250 pounds. And she said that she worked with Milton Berle. And every night Milton Burrow would say, see that girl? She's got TB, two bellies, you know. And one night she went to him and said, could you not do that joke? It kind of hurts my feelings. And he said, no. And I thought, what? What's the what, what? I mean, you can't take yeah. the joke out. I mean, you got to make fun of it. You know, and so I never liked him from that point on. Um, I liked the comedians who looked normal but were funny. I was not a big fan of the throw a pie uh you know, flower that squirts water, you know, the pratfall kind of comedian. I liked Carson. I liked uh, Cosby, the pre-prison uh, Cosby. What did you um, think of uh, Lenny Bruce? I like Lenny Bruce. I'm, he, he was one of those guys I was fascinated by. I read the Albert Goldman book, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. And mm -hmm. I used to work the strip joints in New York and those kind of places and all the places that Lenny worked. I, I Again, that was a classic case of creating something you never want to create anything that's bigger than your act because then you wind up being a slave to that 
I mean, suddenly he was a free speech guy and he just, you know, same thing happened to Mort Saul. You know, when Mort Saul got on the gravy train about the Kennedy assassination, I went to see him and he just spoke about the assassination for the whole hour and a half. I, I thought, I thought Lenny Bruce was funny. He, he was, he was good. Um, I thought at the time Mort Saul got his point across better because Lenny was always preaching to the converted pretty much. Whereas Mort Saul went on Ed Sullivan and did it on Ed Sullivan and kind of made his converts there. But, uh, but I, I like, I like Lenny Bruce. Who do you love today? Do you see cars and comedians getting coffee? Have you Oh, so yeah, yeah. I, I, well, and Jerry and I are good friends. I like Kevin Mullaney. I think he's just unbelievable. Um, there's a lot. Of, I just watch Ray Romano. Ray makes me laugh. Um, uh, Seinfeld. Uh, just a lot of it. There's just a lot of young comics out there now. Neil Brennan is really funny. Are you a, a mentor, Jay, to some of them? Do they ever try to pick your brains? Are you a mentor to young and up-and-coming comedians? Yeah, you talk comedians? to young comedians all the time. and uh, yeah, they ask you questions about the old days and stuff. But see, the one thing is comedy doesn't change. If I said to you, I want you to watch this Rudolph Valentino movie, The Sheik, from 1924, you'd get about 15 minutes in, you'd be pulling your hair out because it's so slow and laborious and everything seems to take forever. But if you watched a Keaton or a Chaplin film from 1924, I think you'd laugh just as hard as the people did then, maybe even harder because of the, the clothes and the cars and, you know, the speeded up film and all that kind of stuff. You know, the big fat pompous guy falling in a mud puddle is just as funny today as it was in 1890. You know, it's, it's just something about the human condition. So I don't think comedy changes that much. The only thing that's changed recently is the attention span has gotten increasingly shorter. You know, when you watch uh, like a Bob Newhart on The Tonight Show, Bob would do a nine-minute routine, and it might take him 40 seconds to a minute to get the setup to the punchline. Now you have 10 or 15 seconds to get the setup. But if you don't, people go, oh, he's bombing. Oh, he hasn't got any less yet, you know. Other than shorter attention spans, the, the basic premise of the whole thing hasn't changed that much. Whatever happened to that comedy club you opened in Connecticut many, 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 many years ago? No, it wasn't a comedy club. What it was was uh, Boston had, you know, thousands of students willing, with no money willing to be entertained by people with no talent. So what most of the colleges do, they put a candle in the cafeteria and that would become the two-toe cafe on Saturdays. And it was usually guys with guitars singing, stop your war machine, you know, and that kind of stuff. And uh, you do a couple of jokes. But no, we didn't open a comedy club. No, just just telling jokes. But you, that's where you started. So you have any jokes planned for February 28th when you'll be humanitarian, when you receive your award for Hatzalah? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll do a couple of jokes. I'll do a couple of jokes. Uh, they, they told me you're not doing it in Iraq. I said, okay, fine. So I'll tell a couple of jokes, no well, you know, you're, the Jewish world loves you. What do you think that is? Well, I, I, I think, you know, when you make a friend, you make a friend for life. And I think there are a lot of performers that get asked to go to Israel and they just accept it as another gig. And then somebody says, hey, you shouldn't go there for this reason. Oh, I shouldn't? Okay. And they cancel. And uh, I don't quite get that. You know, I'm one of those people that, you know, everybody around Israel can lose 10 to 15 times. It's not the end of the world. Israel can only lose once. 
and then it's over. And, you know, you go there and you see who you're surrounded by. I mean, I, I don't pretend to understand the issue, but I think in life you have to take sides. And you got to go, you know something, I got to go with this side. And because of my background and uh, Jewish people all my life have been very nice to me and very kind to me, and I don't hear them say they want to kill their enemies, that they want to get along with them, or they want to have peace, or, I mean, I'm not being naive, but it's just the way I see it, you know? Um, Israel is still a democracy. It's the only one left in that part of the country. And when you look at Saudi Arabia with this journalist being killed and all this other stuff going on, you realize what a little jewel this is in the middle there, you know? And um, it just seems like the right thing to do. You know, I, I look at Jewish contributions throughout the world versus the number of Jews there are versus, you know, the number of heart surgeons and doctors and inventions and things like that. And you see the desert blooming and you go, okay, what's, what's wrong with this? You know, I, I don't know. It just seems like the right thing to do. And, I, you know, I like Jewish people. Now, if I was someone who would have been uh, tortured by Jewish people and they treating me terrible as a kid, or well, maybe I'd feel differently, but I don't. I mean, we grew up with Jewish neighbors, and as I said, being the sort of Shabbos Goy kid and doing the errands, and, you know, Mrs. Henry would explain to me why Jewish people do that, and, oh, I see, well, that religion makes sense. So you have the two dishes, because why? Well, you see, in the old days, it, it wasn't clean, and one was, oh, okay, and it, it, and it, it just made sense. It seemed logical. It wasn't based on fairy tales and stories. And I thought, oh, this seems like a pretty smart religion and smart people. And that, that's all, you know. What was it like when, when you went to Israel in 2014 for the Genesis uh, Gala? It was like going to my cousin Toby's wedding. You know, hey, there's a lot of people friendly. And it was, just, it was just funny. The whole country felt like my cousin's wedding. Just a lot of family people. And first of all, most of them are from New York. Hey, Jay, Hill Road in the Bronx. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? You know, so I thought that was interesting. Was that your only trip, Jay, to, to Israel? No, I've been there, been there a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying at the King David Hotel and looking out the window, okay, and there's a wall right there. And there's Palestine on the other side of the wall. And people throwing rocks and things. And I go, Jesus, isn't that a crazy way to live, you know? I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it takes a lot of guts to live there. And uh, I admire the people that do. And, you know, it, it's, it's, when we buy these ambulances, it's to help people. We're not, you know, we're not given guns and ammunition. It's, it's, it's ambulances. And then the idea behind these motorcycle ambulances is they can get into places where a full-size ambulance could not go. You know, they can rush right up to the scene of the accident or the, God forbid, the bomb or whatever else went off and start giving aid almost immediately where the regular ambulance did not get in there and do that. So it, it just seemed like uh, a way to help out, you know. That's just a way to say thank you. As I said, Jews had always been very nice to me when I was growing up. So it's just a way to say thank you. And, 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 you know, it's fun when you get to be friends with people who 
think differently and are different than you, be it religious beliefs or political beliefs. And you get to see the other side of the story and you go, oh, okay. Oh, that's why this is, you know? And when people confront you with anti-Semitism, you can say to them, well, you know, I know a lot of Jews and that's not true. And that's not true. And what you just said, I never saw that. And it stops, it stops the conversation right there because you have experience. You know, most people who hear anti-Semitic things probably don't have a lot of experience with Jewish and so they probably believe it. Oh, really? Oh, they oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know Jews did that. I mean, you know, and, and that's what happens when you can say, I've been to Israel, or I had Jewish neighbors, or I've done a bunch of these things and the people are really, oh, okay. Because you have firsthand knowledge and firsthand experience and you can, it, it's the best defense. It's such a sensitive subject because there's such a part of America that's pro-Semitism that likes Jews and the whole idea of anti-Semitism is the exact opposite of that. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, we live in a world where being successful and powerful is not that popular. And Israel, you know, they've well, been jealousy forced... jealousy is jealousy. I mean, I know just being in show business, on your way up, everybody loves you. When you get there, well, you know why you got there? Because... X, Y, and Z. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, you know. I mean, it's the same. It's the same type of thing. Um, somehow, you know, people who gauge their success by other people's failures—that's eh, not really the way to go. Uh, you know, it's an easy way out. You know, the idea that somehow, if that guy wasn't there, you would be in that position. Well, no, you won't because you're not good enough. I mean, <laughs> that person got there through hard work and going to school or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. I think a big part of the animosity towards Israel is connected to the fact that it's a successful country and it's powerful because it's had no choice but to defend itself. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they don't act like victims because they can't afford to. And, you know, right, I have a, right. Well, I, I, I must say they, I, I don't know who, who Israel's PR firm is, but it's the worst because whenever I watch it on the news, I never see the people throwing the rocks or the bombs. They only it only seems to be the response. The, the, the response, which is usually uh, superior in the terms of firepower or training or whatever, so it looks sort of thuggish, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, a kid throwing a rock, or, you know, and you've got a gun. Okay, well, immediately assigned with the kid with the rock, you know, mm -hmm. uh, even though. Those rocks are being thrown 24 hours a day. You know, uh, it, it's hard. It, it is. It, it's 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 a hard thing. So the only thing you can do is do good work, and you, you know you can change. The best way to change minds is one at a time. It takes a long time, uh, but you go through your life and you realize, oh, I've changed a few hundred or a few thousand or a few dozen people's opinions about this subject you know it's a bit like uh when long hair came out you know and people would finally see somebody oh well you know he's like eddie he has long hair he's okay you know i mean it's you know it's hard to beat people's prejudices but you have to take it one step at a time it's like you try to be a good example you know i mean to me um you know one of my favorite things is i whenever like Helga my assistant is Austrian and there was a guy uh, in Austria 
who kept a woman in a basement for like 30 years. This story was about two or three years ago. You know, it's just awful. Kept this woman chained up in the basement. And I said to Helga, I said, Helga, do all Austrian men do that? No, Jay, no, please. I don't want you to think. <laughs> you know, I was just teasing her. But that's what people do. They hear one bad story and they equate a whole a race of people with that particular trait, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, people always say, oh, this is going to be bad for the Jews. Oh, well, it's going to be good for the Jews, you know, whatever it might be. That that guy's not really Jewish, you know. It's isn't like it happening, isn't it happening in America right now, Jay, the sense that America is going to hell in a handbasket and sort of ignoring the incredible progress that this country's made? No, I don't think, I, I, see, I don't think that's true. I'm one of those people, if you miss the news for a day, you miss everything. If you miss the news for a year, you don't miss anything. Mm. And the fact is, we live in a world of sensationalism. I mean, if there's a car accident in China and a, you know, a school bus full of kids goes off a cliff, in China, I'm depressed about it because I have to hear about it today. And it's a terrible thing, even though there are 10 billion people in the world. You know, I, I mean, people do good work every day. Civilization works because most people are basically pretty good or pretty decent. I always believe that. Um, whenever I see somebody stuck by the side of the road, I always stop to help them. And inevitably, I always hear about it, you know, uh, from, yeah, I remember one day, I was uh, going by and I saw this black guy, he's just furious, yelling, walking down, up and down his car, you know. So I turned around and I said, you okay? You look like a crazy person. And he went, yeah, nobody's stopping. Why? Because I'm black. Don't give me a ride. I said, I'll, I'll help you. What's wrong with the car? And I helped him out, you know. And he was just a regular guy with a regular office job. He's a nice guy. But he was so grateful. And he comes to the shows every now and then. I go, okay, there, I made a little bit of a difference. Maybe he thinks oh, white people are not so bad after all. And any prejudice I had about, oh, what, should I stop and help that black guy? Or what? what? No, it's just a guy that's stuck. Oh, so I should stop and help. And, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's just... Human. It's human. Yeah. You, you know what it is? One out of every 600 people is a criminal. And if you live in a community of 600 and you don't catch that guy, you have a crime wave. But it's just one guy. And in the media, one out of 600 stories could be the positive story. That's right. That's yeah. right. So It creates again, a distorted perception. I mean, every news story now is breaking news. Breaking news. You know, it's like people have these doorbell cameras, you know. And anytime a leaf blows by or there's any movement, Oh, their phone goes off, and they're a nervous wreck because they think somebody's breaking in the house twenty-four hours a day. <laughs> you know, you know, they're not. Nobody's breaking in your house, but you just think that because this thing goes off all the time. Right. Because the slightest movement, the slightest deviation, you know. Um, I, I, I believe in the basic. I, I think civilization works because people are basically good. Okay, we don't have enough policemen. There are what. 12 million people in LA and we have 15,000 policemen. Okay. That's not enough. If, I, if life was as bad as the people portray it, it would be unbelievable. I mean, yes, it's bad. I'm not naive. I know there's crime, but I find for the most part, people help other people all the time. If you have an accident or something like that, there are people that rush to your defense, you know, putting themselves in danger. People do it every day. Well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. 
Sorry, go ahead. Well, that's okay. On that note, who is that, by the way? Is that something important? That was my wife. Ah, my you, wife. you know what? If it's your wife, Jay, please uh, call your wife back. We're very grateful that you uh, gave us the time and were. Oh, you know, yeah, well, thanks, and I'll see you then. Congratulations on your humanitarian award, February 28th, with United Hatsala. God bless you, Jay. Well, come up and say hello. I will. I will. Now, how, right. how old are you? Are we about the same age? You know, we look about the same, by the way. And Shani, my daughter, said, you have to tell them I'm a Jay Leno lookalike. So oh, you'll, you'll, you'll notice me when I see you there. All, All right. right. See Thanks. you then. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you, my friend. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.